One of the biggest independent black-owned record labels before Detroit's Motown Records began was founded right here in Chicago. With a little help from my friend, author John F. Lyons, today we're talking about VJ Records as part of Chicago's black-owned record labels, part two. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I recommend doing so as it fills in some details we aren't going to go over again in this episode. Also, for those of you who are listening to this episode just to hear the dynamic John F. Lyons, you'll have to wait just a few minutes, but it will be worth it. Chicago has long been a city with plenty of entertainment options, with Southside venues in the 1930s offering a variety of nationally known singers and bands, comedians, dancers, and more for black audiences. The biggest of these was the Regal at 47th and South Parkway, later renamed King Drive, which was built in 1928 next door to the Savoy Ballroom, which had opened two years earlier. Having these entertainment palaces helped create a new black entertainment district on 47th Street in the late 1920s, moving things from the former area near 35th and State. During the 1930s, another club catering to African-American audiences opened just south of the Regal and the Savoy, Club Delisa at 5521 South State Street, followed in 1942 by the Rum Boogie Club at 343 East Garfield Boulevard. Club Delisa and the Rum Boogie were just five blocks apart. The Rum Boogie, spelled R-H-U-M Boogie, opened in April of 1942 at a location that had been successful in the 1930s as Dave's Place. Rum Boogie's main owner, Charlie Glenn, was a former car salesman turned club owner who brought on world-famous boxing champion Joe Lewis as an investor. As a black and tan, Rum Boogie welcomed both black and white guests. Instead of trying to pay big bucks to lure the hottest artists of the day to his club, owner Charlie Glenn decided to build the club with artists on their way up, which included singer Sarah Vaughn, who had an eight-week residency at the Rum Boogie. In late 1943, the Rum Boogie Dream Band, as the house band was known, reportedly included Charlie Parker, portrayed by Forrest Whitaker in the 1988 biopic Bird. Parker would eventually be fired, according to reports, for, quote, unruly behavior, end quote. Also in 1943, Decca recording artist Nat Tolles and his orchestra had a three-month residency at the Rum Boogie. When Tolls toured around the country, newspaper ads read, Direct from Rum Boogie Club Chicago, reflecting the club's expanding popularity outside of Chicago. Another artist who proved to be a big draw at the Rum Boogie was Texas-born blues guitarist T-Bone Walker, who had played extensively in Los Angeles' big band scene and had recorded for Columbia Records as early as 1929. Club owner Charlie Glenn had T-Bone Walker back to the club for many extended periods to play as crowds responded strongly to Walker's electrified blues guitar sounds. In 1944, T-Bone Walker, who had been dropped from his recording contract with a West Coast record label, 
was now free to record for Charlie Glenn's newest venture, the Rum Boogie Recording Company, a record label set up to record and promote acts at the Rum Boogie Club. In October of 1944, a recording session with T-Bone Walker was held, led by pianist Marl Young, who was fronting the Rum Boogie five-piece house band at the time. The first Rum Boogie release, I'm Still in Love with You, backed with Sail on Boogie. I can learn to love a woman like you in this world somewhere. was released in August of 1945 and proved to be a good-sized hit. Mercury Records soon took over day-to-day operations of the Rum Boogie Records distribution. Two more T-Bone singles, including Mean Old World Blues... Appeared on the Rum Boogie label. T-Bone Walker's song Call It Stormy Monday has been covered by many musicians since Walker first recorded it in 1947 for Hollywood-based black and white records, including the Allman Brothers and Ava Cassidy. Walker is credited for inspiring blues greats B.B. King, Freddie and Albert King, Dwayne Allman, and Stevie Ray Vaughan. In 2018, Rolling Stone magazine ranked Walker number 67 on its list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time. T-Bone Walker was posthumously inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame in 1980 and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1987. The last Rumbuggy release was by a swing trumpeter named Charles Gray. Gray was the son of Harry Gray, who was the longest-serving president of Chicago Federation of Musicians Local 208, the Musicians' Union for African Americans. Yes, there was indeed a union for white musicians, Local 10, and a separate one for black musicians, Local 208. Both were formed in the first few years of the 1900s, and those unions would not join forces until January of 1966. Charles Gray had worked in swing bands led by Eddie Cole and Carol Dickerson, as well as Nat King Cole. The recordings, including I'm a Bum Again. Stand in front of the rum boogie. Ain't no use to going in. Standing in front of the rum boogie. Ain't no use to going in. Even if whiskey was water, I couldn't afford no gin. Featured Joseph Buster Bennett on vocals and tenor sax, with Charles Gray playing the trumpet and leading the band. That included Red Saunders, one of the most in-demand drummers on the black club circuit back in the day. After fire on New Year's Eve 1945, the Rumbuggy Club closed temporarily 
reopening in June of 1946. By then, crowds had moved on to other venues, and with finances stretched thin, the Rum Buggy closed its doors for good in 1947, ending the chance for any future Rum Buggy records as well. And now, John F. Lyons, author of the book Joy and Fear, The Beatles, Chicago, and the 1960s, steps in to talk about the most successful black-owned Chicago record label of its day, VJ Records. Chicago's VJ Records was one of the most successful African-American-owned record labels in the country. It was named after the first letters of its owners, Vivian Carter and James Bracken, and its headquarters was located on South Michigan Avenue. The husband and wife team founded the label in 1953, but it folded some 13 years later, a victim of its own extraordinary success. Even before she founded VJ Records, the achievements of Vivian Carter were enough to make her a remarkable, pioneering woman. Carter was born in March 1921 in Mississippi. Like so many other African Americans from the South, her family moved north to Gary, Indiana in the 1920s. She left high school in 1939 and showed a keen interest in entering the music business or the arts. Her chance came in 1948 when she won a contest run by Chicago DJ Al Benson, the so-called godfather of black radio. The prize? To DJ a 15-minute segment on his show. So started a career as a female DJ in a male-dominated industry. She worked in Hammond, Indiana, and then Gary, where she broadcast her popular radio show Living with Vivian, where she styled herself the hostess, who brings you the most S. In 1950, Carter and James Bracken, a budding businessman originally from Oklahoma, opened a record store in Gary. Three years later, they started VJ Records by borrowing $500. The Spaniels recording of Baby It's You became VJ's first release. Baby, when you kiss me, baby. Oh, you make me feel so good Baby Well, I know I love you, baby Baby, cause I should As the company grew, Calvin Carter, Vivian's brother, became principal A&R man and producer and Ewart Abner became VJ president. The bright lights of Chicago proved a sparkling attraction to any ambitious entrepreneur who wanted a successful record label. First headquartered at 2129 South Michigan Avenue, in 1960 they moved the VJ HQ down the street to its more famous location, 1449 South Michigan Avenue. VJ was one of a number of labels such as Chess, Chance, Wonderful, Constellation, King and later Brunswick that opened premises on a 10-block stretch of South Michigan Avenue that became known as Record Row. Unlike Motown and Chess, VJ did not use its own recording studio or develop a signature sound, but instead it released a wide variety of music. VJ included on its roster blues artists such as John Lee Hooker, and Jimmy Reed, Do Wop Greats, The Eldorados, The Spaniels and Gene Chandler, 
and gospel groups, the Staple Singers and the Highway QCs, which included the great Sam Cooke in its ranks. VJ pioneered the modern sound The Soul with early records by The Dells, D. Clark, Betty Everett and The Impressions, whose For Your Precious Love many consider to be the first soul record. They also released records by Little Richard, The Four Seasons, and a little-known group from Liverpool, England, called The Beatles. In the spring of 1962, Gene Chandler's Duke of Earl became the label's first million seller. Staying at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for three weeks. Later that summer, another VJ act, a white harmony group from New Jersey called The Four Seasons, hit the number one spot with their debut single, Sherry. Their next release, Big Girls Don't Cry, promptly followed suit, as did their third, Walk Like a Man. In a truly groundbreaking development, the biggest white act in America was putting out its records on a black-owned label. VJ was not content with achieving success in the US alone. They established contacts abroad in order to sell African-American music in Europe and also to release European acts in the US. One of these acts was the Beatles. Now, many myths surround the Beatles-VJ connection, but here is the true story. The EMI Records was the Beatles record label in the UK and Capitol Records was EMI subsidiary in the US. When the Beatles released their first single, Love Me Do, in October 1962, Capitol refused to release the record because British acts had had no sustained success in the US and the sound of Love Me Do did little to change Capitol's mind. With Capitol uninterested in their recordings, EMI wanted to sell their records to other American labels. Thus, in 1961, EMI set up Transglobal Music, whose function was to place EMI records with American companies. One of the first was Australian singer Frank Ifill's single, I Remember You. I remember you You're the one who made my dreams come true A few which was a number one in the UK for EMI's Columbia label, but Capital declined to issue the song in the US. Transglobal offered it to the now highly successful VJ Records, who released the record in the summer of 1962 
and it went on to become a top 10 hit in the US. Recalling VJ's success with Ifield, Transglobal now off the Beatles records to VJ. VJ took a chance on the unknown English group and in January 1963, VJ President Ewart Abner signed the licence agreement with the right of first refusal on Beatles music for five years. Initially, EMI gave them 16 songs, including the first Beatles album that was released in the UK, Please Please Me. But in theory, the label had first refusal on future recordings such as Rubber Soul, Revolver and even Sgt Pepper. With this agreement in place, VJ released Please Please Me on February 7th, 1963, exactly a year before the Beatles set foot in the United States. Indicative of VJ's lack of knowledge or interest in the group, their name was misspelled on the record label. It was spelt B-E-A-T-T-L-E-S. Dick Biondi at WLS became the first DJ to play the record. On the 8th of March 1963, Please Please Blee debuted on the WS chart at number 40. It peaked at number 35 the following week and then disappeared from the survey. By the summer of 1963, the single had still sold only 5,650 copies. VJ followed it up by releasing the Beatles' second 45, From Me to You, in May 1963. Unlucky for VJ, Del Shannon, who toured England with the Beatles in spring 1963 and who had enjoyed a series of hit records in the US, released his own version of From Me to You in the summer of 1963. Most radio stations, including Chicago's WLS, played Shannon's cover version rather than the original by the unknown British band. Now this is when VJ's problem started. Overspending and tax issues meant that VJ started to suffer financial problems. EMI complained that no royalties had been paid on the Frank Ifield single or on the two Beatles records. So EMI terminated the agreement with VJ. Swan Records of Philadelphia, therefore, became the next US label to try to find success with the Beatles when they released She Loves You in September 1963. But Swan, just like VJ, provided only modest distributional promotion for the record and, surprisingly, that Beatles single also flopped. When the Beatles started to gain traction in the US in December 1963 and Capitol released the single I Wanna Hold Your Hand, VJ quickly realised that the Beatles songs that they had in their vaults was a goldmine. VJ quickly released the first Beatles LP in the US, 
introducing the Beatles on January the 10th, 1964. So VJ had not only released the first Beatles single in the US, but now the first Beatles album. Capital was not amused and hit VJ with an injunction against selling records by the Beatles. Capital claimed that a failure to pay royalties had rendered all of VJ's previous rights to the Beatles catalogue null and void. The legal battle between VJ and Capital was finally settled out of court in April 1964, whereby VJ could sell the Beatles product they had in their vault, but all future Beatles recordings were kept by Capitol Records. With no more new Beatles material to release, the label had to be creative with the recordings they had. They released Hear the Beatles Tell All, an interview album, The Beatles versus The Four Seasons, containing the Beatles music released earlier on Introducing the Beatles, Songs, Pictures and Stories of the Fabulous Beatles, yet again containing the music released earlier on Introducing the Beatles, and Beatles and Frank Ifield on stage. The Beatles and Frank Ifield were not together on stage and the recordings weren't live. It contained previous released material. Maybe worst of all was an album that VJ released called The 15 Greatest Songs of the Beatles, all composed by John, Paul and George. But few eager buyers noticed in the fine print and sung by the Mersey Boys. It wasn't a Beatles album. Now, Beatlemania was in full force, but VJ was to hit the rails. Lawyers' fees to fight capital, overspending, non-payment of taxes, employees absconding with the money, managerial changes, and greater competition elsewhere, including from Motown, caused severe financial problems for VJ. The company folded in 1966, and Vivian returned to Gary, Indiana, and carried on working as a DJ. Carter and Bracken divorced. James Bracken died in Los Angeles in 1972. And Vivian Carter spent the last years in a nursing home and died in 1989. After VJ folded, the building at 1449 South Michigan Avenue housed Brunswick Records, but then lay vacant for a number of years. It was sad to see people passing by the old building, unaware of the history that had been made inside. In March... 2021, however, in the middle of the pandemic, the building reopened as Overflow Coffee House. The owners wanted to recognise the building's past and pay due credit to those who worked in the building some 60 years earlier. Inside the coffee shop, a full display of VJ releases and a huge photo of Vivian Carter and James Bracken looks down on the customers as the shop's record player plays some of the greatest and most influential music ever released by any record label. Thanks for listening to today's episode about Chicago's black-owned record labels, part two. 
The first part of this episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. Much thanks to this episode's guest, Jonathan Lyons, for his research, input, and cool accent in the latter half of this episode. I have a list of all the music included in today's episode at the Chicago History Podcast website's blog page at chicagohistorypod.com. I also have links to books, including John F. Lyons' Beatles book, as well as other related items if you or someone you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArt jks on instagram or via email at angel jks at gmail.com i will be back soon with more stories from chicago's history until then get out and explore when possible learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe <laughs>